Welcome to Cancer Docs Talk, a bi-weekly podcast where oncologists discuss the latest cancer news, produced by Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Our host is Dr. Gilberto Lopes, a recognized leader and director of global oncology at Sylvester, and a renowned medical oncologist specializing in lung cancer. Welcome to Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, Cancer Docs Talk. This is our Blood Cancers Month issue, and uh, this is Gilberto Lopes. I'm a medical oncologist at the center, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. Krishna Komanduri, who leads our bone marrow transplant unit, our stem cell uh, infusion unit, and he's going to be talking to us about the advances that we have had in this area in the last few years and how our unit at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer has developed over the last few years as well. Krishna, thank you for coming. We're all yours. Thank you, Dr. Lopes. Uh, it's a great pleasure. This is actually my first podcast, so, um, and, and I think both of us are, are interested in spreading the word of what we're doing here at Sylvester and across the country uh, through social media and, and new media, and I think it's really particularly uh, great to be here. So um, I've been now here for 10 years, uh, just marked my 10th anniversary here uh, at the University of Miami and at Sylvester, uh, and it's true that um, we have a lot of really exciting things to talk about. Yes, um, we do. Yeah, and our, our, our program uh, for, for our listeners uh, really um, historically has done what we call bone marrow transplants, but the reality is that we often uh, now don't use bone marrow as a source for doing stem cell transplants. We actually uh, obtain stem cells from either the patient um, or a donor uh, from the blood. Uh, and um, because these were the first cell therapies, that is, uh, therapies for cancer that combined traditional approaches like chemotherapy with cells, either uh, collected and reinfused from the patient himself or uh, from a, a compatible donor. Uh, it was really the first, you know, uh, introduction into the power of killing cancer with cells. We learned a couple of decades ago, pretty definitively, it, it was speculated earlier that the white blood cells actually from uh, donors who uh, gave to patients could actually kill off cancer cells. And I think uh, one of the things that I know Dr. Lopes is interested in hearing about is how we are now harnessing the power of white blood cells, especially T cells, to cure cancer, even without doing historically what we've done with stem cell transplants. So that, I think that that's right. And I, I remember when he did donor infusion, infusion of donor cells for patients with CML, which thankfully we now have targeted therapies, and we rarely do that, at least not as often as we used to 20, 30 years ago. So why don't we start talking about for which patients are we commonly using stem cell infusions and what are the usual indications for these treatments that we often do at Sylvester? That's a, that's a great first question. So uh, the first thing I would, I would say is the original rationale for using stem cell uh, therapies was not actually to regenerate um, or somehow replace cancer cells, as sometimes people think, but really to allow us to give very high doses of chemotherapy. So Dr. Lopes and, and I, uh, when we are treating patients who are not getting stem cell transplant and others, tend to give chemotherapy. And, and we all know that chemotherapy knocks down healthy white blood cells, but typically in the doses that, it's given, that are given and in the outpatient setting or, or through the course of uh, other treatments, the white blood cells can recover to normal uh, numbers and perhaps the patient might for a week or two or three um, have lower white blood cell counts. But it was reasoned a long time ago that if we could give very high doses of chemotherapy, that perhaps we would 
kill off more of the cancer cells and the cancer would be less likely to recur. So the first type of transplant is really a type of transplant that we call an autologous transplant, uh, otherwise uh, known as an autotransplant. Uh, and in that case, we are actually taking cells from the patient uh, and and saving them. And I, I think an analogy that I use is it's like um, if you wanted a, if you had a prize plant in your garden and you wanted to uh, treat the weeds that are immediately around that plant and you sprayed weed killer liberally, you might actually damage your plant. Um, so if you take the plant out of the garden, and, and, and this is analogous to what we do with stem cells, we collect stem cells from the blood, freeze them in the laboratory. Now we can give high-dose chemotherapy without the stem cells being injured. Uh, what we're doing here is really using the high-dose chemotherapy to cure the disease or to extend the disease. Uh, and then we reinfuse the stem cells immediately after the chemotherapy is, is done just to kind of replant the garden, and that typically happens you know, 10 to 12 days later. Those types of transplants, about half of the, of the autologous transplants that are done here and across the country are done for a disease called multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of the bone marrow of, uh, of a type of immune cell called a plasma cell. The other... And we will definitely bring Dr. Jim Hoffman to talk about myeloma in more detail, especially with all the developments and the new treatments that we have. So today we're focusing on the transplant part of the treatment of myeloma. That's right. And I think one thing that's very important to know is that myeloma has a dramatic number of new treatments, but there have been studies that were done roughly uh, 20 years ago now, but repeated recently, that still show that the majority of patients um, benefit from having a stem cell transplant. And, and unfortunately, uh, in one sense, we have a really good thing, which is that they're phenomenal new treatments for myeloma, but what sometimes happens is that, that the doctors and the patients themselves don't realize that the standard of care is still for most patients to get a stem cell transplant for myeloma. The other um, more common indication for autotransplants uh, are lymphomas, and lymphomas are, there are a number of different subtypes of lymphomas, including Hodgkin's lymphoma and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. These tend to be cancers that involve the lymph nodes. That's why they're, uh, again, cancers of the lymph. Um, and they, you know, and, uh, they um, are also um, diseases that are treated that when they relapse after failing other treatments, so uh, they are unlikely to be cured. They may be cured roughly 20 to 25% of the time with second-line therapies. But when we do stem cell transplants, we learned, again, over 20 years ago, that we can cure about half of those patients that relapse, uh, and, and that real still remains true today. The good thing is for autotransplants, you know, the patient is getting their own cells back, and we are so good at doing these transplants, not just here at Sylvester, but across the country, that fewer than one in 100 patients actually dies due to the complications of these transplants, which was quite different 20 or 30 years ago. So this is actually a very safe procedure, even though it is involved and requires typically two to three weeks of hospitalization. The different type of transplant, and I know this is confusing for people, is when we use donors. Uh, and those, those transplants are called allogeneic transplants or allotransplants, and I often uh, refer to them as, as donor transplants. And these are the, the most common indications for these types of transplants, allotransplants, are leukemias, which involve the bone marrow. And, and all other diseases, like when the, uh, there are diseases called uh, like aplastic anemia or myelodysplasia, where the bone marrow is not functioning properly uh, and, and then can progress either to a failure state or can progress to acute leukemia. There are other indications, but those are by and large, um, there are adult and, and childhood leukemias that typically can be cured with other therapies, but are cured with other therapies no more than half the time. An allotransplant can cure patients who either have high-risk features or have relapsed. Uh, and this is actually what's really exciting. About 20 to 25 years ago, we actually realized 
that there, it wasn't the high-dose chemotherapy that was curing patients, but actually the immune system of the donor that was going in and killing off cancer cells that were resistant to chemotherapy. So roughly at, at Sylvester, we, we did almost 250 transplants in the last 12 months. About 40% of those were allotransplants um, uh, and about six, you know, or involving a donor, and that could be a family donor or a registry donor. Uh, and about 60% of those were autotransplants. And it's that, you know, it's a good bridge because it's those, the ability to use the donor cells that, um, and the fact that those donor cells could, could cure patients that had relapse. And you talked about donor lymphocyte infusions. Yesterday at Sylvester, we had a very special day. We did three unrelated donor transplants in one day, and we did a donor lymphocyte infusion for a patient who had relapsed and got additional wow. T cells to try to put the patient back in remission. So, so it's exciting. We've in, the, in 10 years, we've moved from doing roughly 40 to 50 transplants a year to now 250 transplants a year with about 100 uh, donor transplants performed in the last year, which is really extraordinary. We think that there's still greater need in South Florida, but we've really become a leading national center, both in terms of the numbers of patients and our outcomes, as well as the clinical trials yeah. that we're doing. Dr. Komandori, tell me a little bit more about the donors. So we used to need a full HLA match, and now we can do transplants with unrelated donors. We can do it less than a perfect match. Uh, would you care to explain to us what that means and how we go about actually finding donors for our patients? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. So roughly um, each sibling that a patient has has a one in four chance. So, you know, most people have, you know, typically two or three siblings and will have about a 50-50 chance of having a, a sibling be a, a, what we call perfect match. That is, they get the same immunologic genes from both father and mother and therefore are very compatible. That the donor, when it's not well matched, can attack the recipient. That The T cells can not only, you know, eliminate the cancer but cause a condition called graft versus host disease or GVHD. Uh, and, and that can happen with a fully matched brother or sister, unless it's an identical twin, and most people don't have an identical twin, but fully matched siblings can cause GVHD. But the more um, mismatched you get, the more likely that is to happen. So historically, and this is really important, uh, at one point uh, before the 1980s, if you didn't have a matched sibling, you couldn't get a transplant. Fortunately, the National Marrow Donor Program, Be the Match, an organization I've had the pleasure to work with, established registries, and those registries then took unrelated donors who were volunteers. And that has been a wonderful thing. And, and indeed, if you have a Western European background, um, or again, a common uh, background that may be a minority background, you have a, a 70 to 80% chance of finding a, a donor in those registries. But if you are um, you know, from, uh, again, more less well-represented or minority backgrounds like I am or others, you're fewer, to, you're less likely to see somebody in that registry that's a donor. So that was a big problem because we had a curative therapy um, that was the standard therapy, but we didn't have access to that. The beautiful thing, and I think you, you know this very well, is that there have been new approaches. And, and over the last five to 10 years in particular, we have now been able to achieve successes that are almost um, equivalent to the success we have with fully matched donors, with partially matched registry donors or half matched uh, family members. So everybody who has a parent or a child now basically has what's called a haplodonor. Uh, so in other words, a half matched donor. 15 years ago, those transplants could be done, but were much more complicated and less likely to turn out well. But through a number of supportive care measures and new approaches, these transplants are now performing perhaps as well as you know, patients who have a sibling. So this notion that, well, a lot of people don't have donors is actually not true. We tell um, uh, people even who are, have, uh, again, no siblings, 
that almost everybody can be transplanted with a donor. It will be a different type depending on who you are and what your background is and what your family members are. But that's really critical and, uh, and something that has not necessarily reached everybody in the community who, who you know, may not be referred because people th assume that they won't find a donor or wouldn't have historically found a donor. And I believe that that's one of the important points of our talk today to actually uh, dispel that uh, misconception that only 25% of patients or fewer actually have potential donors. So the pool of potential donors with haplotransplants, haploidentical transplants, and with um, uh, the donor registry programs has truly increased. That That's one of the reasons why bone marrow units and stem cell units continue to grow and we continue to help so many patients. That's right. The other thing I would just add to that is that uh, many people, you know, historically the ages of, uh, you know, upper limit of age was typically 55 or 60 for donor transplants and maybe 60 or 65 for autologous transplants. We routinely now do auto transplants uh, in the 70s and we actually did an 80-year-old patient recently who did great and left the hospital within two weeks of admission and we're doing allo or donor transplants up to 75. So unfortunately, many patients in the community are 67 or um, 72 and they actually don't get referred by their primary oncologist because their primary oncologist you know, what isn't aware trained, that we did trained so much. 20 that. years ago. That's right. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we had uh, last year lower than a 5%, you know, early mortality rate uh, in, 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 all, in the allogeneic transplants and basically 0% in autologous transplants. Really dramatic advances. So it, I think the important thing is that if you have one of the diseases that Natasha Lopes and I talked about, that it, it's always appropriate to seek consultation. And, and we think that many patients just fall off because they're never seen. A patient and the referring physician will always be involved in the decision, and we will never recommend a transplant for somebody who we think is likely to be cured. Absolutely. So there's very little lost in that consultation, and often that's very reassuring uh, for patients who don't need a transplant just to be told that. But but there are patients that we know that could or should be cured or have a higher likelihood of cured who never get to us, and it's one of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk here. Thank you for that, Dr. Kamanduri. The second topic that I'd like to touch upon today is actually that of CAR T cells. So what are CAR T cells and which situations are we using it routinely and how can patients know if there are candidates for that therapy? So as I noticed, uh, talked about earlier, T cells from donors can cure patients of cancer but can also be associated with these complications. So what we've learned, that really gave us this I I notion that even patients who have failed multiple types of chemotherapy, like our leukemia patients who get donor transplants, can be cured by T cells. T cells are the cells, are a subset of white blood cells, that protect us from viral infections. So if we get a cold or a flu virus, uh, we, you know, our, our T cells expand in our bodies and eliminate those viruses. Uh, and so what has really been remarkable is in the last 10 years or so, um, bright scientists have basically taken T cells from patients um, and uh, redirected those T cells to recognize targets that are present on cancer. Uh, and there are a couple of um, proteins that you know, we have particularly wonderful results with. There's a protein called CD19 that is actually expressed on many types of pediatric leukemia and many types of lymphoma that happen in older patients. These diseases, when they failed multiple lines of therapy, were very unlikely to be cured, less, you know, uh, probably less than 10% of the time. But, but what was done is uh, patients' own white blood cells were, were um, collected in a simple procedure that just takes a few hours. And then the cells were shipped off basically to the laboratory and genetically modified to basically have a, a new receptor 
that recognizes that as something that seeks out and destroys a specific protein, and this protein is called CD19. Uh, so again, many lymphomas and childhood leukemias um, will express CD19. And just to give you a sense, patients who have failed multiple lines of chemotherapy um, or aren't responding at all to chemotherapy, historically, if you give them a next line of chemotherapy for lymphoma, have about a 20% chance of having any improvement in their disease, and, and less than 10%, maybe even around 5% chance of having their disease go transiently away completely. With these new therapies, and, and Dr. Lazarus Lakakis at our institution and I were lucky to be part of uh, an important study that led to the approval of one of the two uh, therapies, we published in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in December that almost 80% of patients responded, and almost half of patients had their disease go completely away. Now, not all of those patients are cured, uh, just like with other therapies. Some do relapse, but the cure rates appear to be potentially in the 40 to 50% in an incredibly difficult uh, group of patients that had almost no chance of, of being alive. So we have now two commercial products that have been approved by the FDA, one by a company called Kite, another one by a company called Novartis. Um, those, those products are named Yaskarda uh, and Kimraya. And both, uh, you know, we have been, uh, had a, a dramatic, uh, you know, and high volume experience with uh, the Escarta product, the Novartis product, which is similar and approved for both leukemia and lymphomas, uh, we'll have available to, uh, uh, at Sylvester actually by the time this podcast airs uh, in, uh, again this month in September. So we are um, very excited. We've actually, we're one of the leading trial sites that led to the approval of these therapies and in the commercial phase. We're really, uh, you know, among uh, one of the handful or, or, you know, 10 or so busiest centers in the country. So this has been really dramatic. Um, there are other, you know, modified CAR T-cell therapies. And again, the, the cells are genetically modified to recognize various targets. There are other promising targets, but none of them are quite as uh, advanced or shown to work. But we actually have trials in place, both for these products in other subsets of lymphoma that where they haven't been yet completely proven to work, and also other types of T-cell therapies for sarcoma, for lung cancer, for ovarian. Those are selected patients. Most patients with those diseases will not be eligible and should not be treated with these therapies first, but we do have them available. Uh, and that's very exciting, I think, not only for our blood cancer docs, but also now as we interact with uh, you know, lung and other uh, cancer specialists like Dr. Lopes. So it's, it's, it is exciting. I, I don't think that we're going to see a number of new therapies approved for other diseases quite yet, but I think we can see a future where 10 to 20 years from now, these will be used for more and more types of cancer and, and will also be done more safely. Thank you, Krishna. That's very informative and very important for our community. Um, are insurers paying for these treatments? Do we have difficulties in access? What's uh, going on? As This is very new, and I imagine a lot of... Uh, things, a lot of the apples are still trying to really find their way in the cart. Yeah, that's a great question. And Dr. Uh, you know, uh, Gilberto, you've been involved with access issues, especially across the world. Um, these are unprecedented uh, therapies in terms of their success, but they're also unprecedented therapies uh, in terms of their cost. The, the pr cost for the two commercial products are almost 400000 and almost $500,000, respectively, depending on the disease. Uh, and so they are being used extraordinarily um, carefully in patients who are known to benefit uh, and fit the, the trial indications. Um, most uh, you know, uh, insurers are recognizing that these therapies should be paid for, but there are um, limits. Medicare has not fully 
um, recognized how to pay for this in the inpatient setting, and most patients need to be paid for in the inpatient setting. Um, uh, uh, the American Society for Blood and Marrow Transplantation, which I had the privilege of leading as president this last year, met yesterday um, actually with uh, the, the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services Administrator, Seema Verma, uh, and are actively advocating and we're working with patient advocates. So there are issues. Some insurance companies don't know how dramatic these therapies are, and we're, we're seeing more delays. It's one of the reasons we need to get patients in early. There are problems, and unfortunately, um, as an academic physician who's also thinking about health economics as you are, and access, not every patient who should get these therapies is quite getting these therapies. Uh, but we are doing our best to advocate um, uh, for every single patient, and, and again, working with patients and insurance companies and social workers and our financial coordinators who deal with these problems on a daily basis. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is that despite being expensive, these medications can actually be cost effective and health economics models have shown that they can be cost effective for um, specific indications and for particular patients. So I think it's important to realize that just because something expensive it does not necessarily mean that it won't be cost effective. And of course, this is a discussion that we'll continue having with our profession organizations, with our representatives, and with patient associations as well. As we are getting to a close, I would love for you to speak a few more minutes on what is it that you're working on or that we are working on that we hope to see in the clinic and practice in the next couple of years. No, thanks for doing that. I, I'm, I'm a laboratory-based scientist, and I study the immune system. I've been studying the immune system for tw 25 years. Um, you know, we actually study in my laboratory everything from how a normal immune system controls healthy viruses, but also trying to extrapolate how cancer patients are affected by chemotherapy and by transplants. And the, the, you know, we, what we really want to do is be able to harness the immune system, for example, from donors and cure patients without that graft-versus-host disease and try to find ways of selectively suppressing the immune system. Even patients with rheumatoid arthritis get treated with drugs that make their arthritis dramatically better but have an increased risk of infection. So one of the really exciting uh, things that I'm involved in, and, and, and uh, we have other people in our laboratories here at Sylvester, Dr. Robert Levy and others who we're collaborating with, uh, to basically solve this problem of how to harness the immune system in these good ways, like in allotransplants and with you know, these CAR T-cell therapies, without the complications by being more selective. We are also interested in, in really addressing the national trial needs. The, the, we became part of a select group of 20 consortium centers across the country uh, in, in the Bone Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network that's supported by the National Institutes of Health. So we're doing a number of trials across disciplines. And like you, um, I've been fortunate to um, be involved a lot at the national level in thinking about health policy and health economics. Um, and, and I think because it's really important for us not only to address issues of patients who, again, are well-insured and have the family circumstances, but to make sure that every patient in our community and every doctor is, has an access to education and supportive care and ideally the same curative therapies that, you know, that, that the most privileged, uh, you know, in our midst have. So these are exciting things and, and um, you know, it's really an enormous um, undertaking and we're so excited. You know, we've grown from a handful of patient people in this program to now 60 to 70 um, you know, staff and, and coordinators and nurses, pharmacists, um, and obviously the, the leadership of the Cancer Center and, and the medical school. And, and it's great to have colleagues like you and, and, and to have vehicles to really spread this message uh, that we didn't have before. Excellent. Thank you so much, Krishna, for sharing all this. It has been truly an amazing effort, and the results are showing. We have a much better chance today of helping our patients pursue their cures than we had 20 years ago, and we're certainly going to be moving forward to continue this work, and we will continue to support 
research so that we can get the next cures as well. For those listening, thank you for being with us. This is our September blood cancers episode of uh, Cancer Docs Talk. Again, I'm your host, Gilberto Lopes, and I hope to see you soon in our next episode. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Cancer Docs Talk with Dr. Gilberto Lopes, Associate Director of Global Oncology at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We hope you'll join us next time for an update on the latest cancer news.